0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my colleague, co-host... Paul Doroshenko. And Wrigley. And Wrigley. So sorry in advance for the Wrigley barking that will be taking place during this podcast.
2: Here we are recording on a sunny Friday afternoon in Vancouver, and I can't believe that the weather is as fantastic.
1: And Wrigley's on as some, it's been. Wrigley's on some new medication, which has given him like five years of life back. Yeah. Which <laughs> part of me is like, wait a minute. <laughs> He was so wonderful and sleepy for a while.
2: Yeah, but he's enjoying himself. So, yes. just be glad that he's yeah. enjoying himself. So, expect yes. some expect some barking.
1: Yes. Um, but today I thought that we would do a big liability special.
2: Liability special yeah. on the Driving Law Podcast.
1: You know, when we, when we think about, like, liability, it actually becomes a really important issue because even though we have a so-called no-fault system in BC for compensation for your injuries from an accident, we don't have a no-fault system when it comes to uh, your insurance rates as a result of um, an accident. And ICBC will still make a determination of whether you're at fault for a collision and a portion liability so that they can make you pay more per insurance.
2: And it's complex, right? Because you don't have two insurance companies battling it out. Um, Of course, that probably doesn't exist in other circumstances either because the insurance companies basically just sort them out and resolve them in a manner that's to nobody's favor. Uh, But ICBC is, you know, one company, and what's their motivation to determine liability? You know, you as an insured might be thinking to yourself, um I don't want to be to blame for something that I you know isn't my fault. Mm-hmm. Uh yet ICBC is going to make that determination, you know and I know, you know, firsthand that ICBC will be out there to make that determination to try and find you at fault just so they can apportion you some blame um and uh, therefore your rates can go up.
1: And there's some general rules that apply in law when it comes to liability. Like Generally speaking, if you rear-end somebody who's stopped lawfully at a light or at an intersection or at a stop sign, um, generally, uh, in those circumstances, you are going to be found at fault. There, are, there are situations where that may not be the case. Uh, if you are making a left turn at a yellow light and you cause a collision, generally speaking, you may be found at fault for making that left turn. Unsafe.ly,
2: and that would be my advice to most people. If they came to me, I would say, "Oh, you were the one turning left. You're not allowed to make a left until it's safe to do so."
1: But that's the key point: is when it is safe to do so, and what constitutes it being safe to make that left turn. And so, there's a recent case from uh, the BC Supreme Court. Uh, This is called Kalana and Keenleitner. I'm
2: Keinleitner.
1: Sure. Um, Now, do Kalana in your like your best Finnish, Swedish,
2: Kalan, Kalana. maybe, maybe Kalana. Belgian. Kolana and Keinleitner. Yeah. Play <laughs> 23 BCSC 1887, if you're looking for it.
1: Yes. And so this is a left-turning case where liability is not apportioned in sort of the ordinary way. So essentially, Miss Keinleitner uh, was driving east on 41st uh, near Clarendon. And I know that intersection, the court characterizes it as like a busy intersection. I'm not sure I'd go that far. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a significant intersection in that area of 41st Avenue. Um, and uh, the vehicle um, that Miss Kalana is driving is beginning to make a left-hand turn. And Miss Keinleitner drives into Miss Kalana's vehicle, um, and there's, you know, there's, there's bad damage. It was also not great road conditions. It was dark. It was rainy. It was wet.
0: So
2: the uh, the left turning vehicle was struck on the passenger side in the rear, and it was fairly significantly damaged. And um, again, this is uh, kind of surprising that there's lawyers involved. It's a BC Supreme Court case. Uh, and like
1: one, three lawyers for one person and two on another.
2: Wonders if uh, maybe somebody was in breach or something like that, and that's why they're they're seeking this determination. Why they were seeking this determination of liability, I don't know, because normally it would just be ICBC. Um, the uh, It might be in there somewhere, but I mean, I got to the meat and potatoes of it that you're just about to cover, which is yeah. an unusual result.
1: It's a totally unusual result um, because the court... Well, first of all, they did the pointing Spider-Man's uh, offense where each of them said, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. You're 100 percent liable. And then they kind of resiled from that position and were like, OK, well, maybe it should be 75 or 80 percent for for them and only 15 or, or 25 or 20 for me. Um, and uh, the court ultimately rules that Miss Heinleitner was was 100 percent at
2: fault for the collision,
1: 100 percent
2: and And she was the one who was going straight through the intersection,
1: yeah, so not only do you have like the court declining to sort of apportion some responsibility to the left turning vehicle, which is rare that you would ever get a hundred percent to the the straight on vehicle, but you also have um you also have the uh the fact that there is uh liability just apportioned to the traveling straight on vehicle.
2: The reasoning is pretty good here, and yeah. it's essentially that um uh, the the straight-on vehicle is entering the intersection when it's not safe to do so. The straight-on vehicle should have stopped for the lights. It should be clear that they should have stopped for the lights. Um, the uh, Essentially entering the intersection at a time when the left-turning vehicle should be clearing the intersection and nobody should be entering the intersection. The issue with that is sort of how it's going to confuse things in my mind going forward. And so I'm thinking that this is probably something that's going to be appealed.
1: Maybe. I mean, the general rule is if you are the left turning vehicle, you are required to yield to traffic that's already in the intersection and anybody that's close enough to the intersection to pose an immediate hazard. Um,
2: If they appear like they're going to go through the intersection, you can wait. You're allowed to safely wait there in the middle of the intersection. If it's sitting there while
1: the light is red,
2: even. And I I do that. I wait for traffic to actually stop.
1: People sure lay on their horns behind Behind me. Um, you know, and also you've got to look for pedestrians and and other road hazards, but apparently this case i i I disagree with you that it would be one where it's going to confuse things because this case they had dash cam video, and the dash cam did show that the light was stale yellow when Miss klein Lightner entered the intersection. important because that's an offense
2: it is an offense, but it's also the most Common manner of driving that we see in British Columbia is people entering, speeding, and entering stale yellow lights. Um, that is, uh, it, it just, you know, for a long time we looked at uh, at speeding and said speeding was speeding and and shouldn't be more. And um, there's a, a an offense for it. And why would you cover it with dangerous driving, for example, in the context of Motor Vehicle Act criminal? Um, legislation. It just feels like it's getting stretched here.
1: I don't think so. I think this is an example of the court maybe trying to crack down on that very common offense and saying, like, look, if you're going to be the person who is going to enter an intersection on a stale yellow light like we see people do, all the time, every day, then you're going to be responsible for the consequences of that action. You should be stopping at a yellow light. That's what the law says.
2: But then you and I are sitting there anticipating it, right? We're anticipating all of the people who are going to run the light, and we're not going through the intersection until it's safe to do so, until we know that people are not doing it. And is that not our duty as the left-hand turner?
1: I I mean, No. Because our duty as the left-hand turner is actually spelled out in the Motor Vehicle Act as well. And I think you have to operate on the assumption that other drivers are going to drive in a manner that's compliant with the law unless there's something about their manner of operation of the vehicle that suggests that they're not going to do that, right? Like, you have to keep an adequate lookout. But beyond that, you have to assume that people are going to follow the law.
2: So this, to me, is a case where... you know, the picture is worth a thousand words. I think all of these other cases that have been decided historically where the left-hand turner is almost always the one, I can't think of a case. I mean, anytime I ever look this up, the left-hand turner was always the one who was responsible mostly or all. Um, Here we've got uh, not just a picture worth a thousand words, we've got a video which is worth a hundred thousand words. And this is the court saying, okay, you know what? When you've got the good evidence... Um, and I think the really it's come down to the fact of the evidence in previous cases. You just don't have the evidence. So you side on who's going through, um, you know, who's who's turning.
1: But sometimes, Paul, liability can also be apportioned not between the people that are involved in the collision, but to the road itself and the people responsible mm-hmm. for the road.
2: I'm. That's always a huge My hurdle. Here. If you're trying to if you're trying to establish that, that's always a huge hurdle. Yes. The uh, first but thing any municipality or government will do. Will-
1: we had that. We had that snow clearing case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada out of Nelson. Remember? So no, though, I don't remember. Well, well, the British Columbia, uh, <laughs> BC Supreme Court heard a case over whether somebody who was injured in a failure of a city to clear snow from a sidewalk. Um, could sue the city for damages. And the city was like, mm, no, you can't because we wrote legislation that says that you can't so long as we like do something. And the Supreme Court of Canada was like, mm, yeah, you can. Ultimately, that's my my legal summary.
2: Good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember it. I'm sure we probably discussed it on the podcast. And,
1: But so I want to talk about this other case from the Alberta Court of Appeal this week um, called Pike and Calgary. So this is a Calgary roadway. It's You probably are familiar with this area, Glenmore Trail near between Deerfoot and Blackfoot Trail.
2: Anybody who's ever been to Calgary for any period of time knows this period. Point. Okay. On, on, so This, this is, spot on the road.
1: I guess a very important road very important. in Calgary. Yes. And um, the uh, woman, uh, Miss Pike, was driving her husband's truck. She's in the middle lane. She loses control of the vehicle because the road is icy. And you'd think, well, I mean, come on, people... Icy road in Calgary. Icy road in Calgary, you should know. Anyway, she loses control of the vehicle. The truck careens into the median, vaults the barrier in the middle, crosses into oncoming traffic, hits a Honda Accord, a passenger in the Accord dies, three other people get serious injuries, Um, and uh, very very serious situation That's miserable yeah and so Miss pike and her husband as the other drivers end up with well, the driver who essentially caused the collision um she ends up getting sued by the deceased family and the injured people and
2: this is why you want to have uh, a lot of liability insurance
1: yes and A settlement is reached, but the question of liability, whether it was Miss Pike's fault or the city's fault for not properly clearing the roadway and keeping the roadway safe and how much liability gets apportioned to each of them, was an issue that had to be determined at trial. And so the trial actually proceeds between Miss Pike and the city to determine how much each of them is going to pay out of this agreed upon settlement based on liability.
2: Yeah. So the settlement is already determined. The amount that the person's uh, the the monetary amount that the that the injured party is going to get is decided, and it's just an issue of who's going to pay for it. Yes, city or insurance company or you know whatever.
1: And so the t- the trial judge in the original trial determines, yeah, the city's partly liable for this because the road was not being maintained. Like they had process in place to maintain it but they were not doing it it was in uh what the court called a state of disrepair uh there was like dirt and gravel that had like built up on the side of the road and then the snow went on top of that and nobody cleared the snow on top of that so the the median which would ordinarily be a certain height which would have prevented the haunt the um miss pike's vehicle from going over the median into the honda and causing the accident wasn't functioning the same way because its effective height had been reduced.
2: That's so difficult because you set guidelines for your municipality or for in any in any area of, of business activity or government, and then That's if the you book. fail to meet the guidelines because you're short-staffed or what have you, next thing you know, twenty
1: fourteen, the city of Calgary had <laughs> nothing but cash in
2: twenty fourteen. True, true. Isn't
1: twenty twenty
2: true? I know.
1: Um, and. Uh, there was also no evidence. The city was unable to produce any evidence that had ever removed dirt and gravel from the median between the time it was installed and the time of the collision. Like, it had never followed through on its obligations.
2: It probably had, but they didn't have records of it. You know, okay, you go out there in your street sweeper and you go here and here and here and here. Okay, yeah, I went here and here and here and here. Well, you don't have a record of it. No note.
1: Yeah. So the city appeals and essentially says we we have laws the laws say that we can't be sued we have the municipal government act and it says that that um uh the there's a duty on us to keep the roads in a state of of repair and as long as we keep them in a reasonable state of repair we can't be liable for things that happen on the roads you can't sue us cuz we wrote legislation that says you can't
2: Um, and that's an interesting thing. So, excuse me again, back in uh, law school, this was a a big topic for us. Um, clauses written into legislation, uh, governments at various different levels trying to write themselves immunity. Um, courts don't seem to like that. You know, courts are constitutional, um, Uh,
1: yeah. Courts want to be able to perform their supervisory function over things that happen and exercise their role as one of the branches of government.
2: And when you see an obligation and you see negligence and failure to fulfill that obligation, the court seems to think that they should step in on behalf of the individuals of the citizens of this fine country.
1: The city's argument was a little bit stupid, I think, because they were basically saying, well, Section 530... Of the Municipal Government Act says that we're protected from liability for damage caused by a system of inspection or a system of maintenance. Um, so, because we have a system, even if we didn't follow it, we can't be sued.
2: Well, I mean, interestingly, that's probably what the Alberta government actually intended. Um, I really you know, the uh, the Alberta government probably fully expected Especially the Donnelly to... government, though. No, the legislation was a, this is a conservative legislation. This is this is long existing conservative legislation. Uh, And that was the expectation. Uh, The uh, Alberta government uh, does not feel that municipalities should take any responsibility. They think everything is individual responsibility.
1: The court also noted that the city should have known that there was a problem here because there were, in the 10 years leading up to the collision, 3,000 accidents on that road. And of those 3,000, that's like 300 a year. Of those 3,000, Four hundred of them, forty a year, involve that barrier.
2: I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. I mean, traffic's moving along there. It's not like ridiculously speedy, but it's moving along, and it's heavy traffic. Yep. Um, it's uh, it, it's an artery. It's a it's a meeting of arteries, and so yeah, especially like I do everything to avoid it at rush hour. But um, there's been lots of times there that I can't believe the uh, how heavy the traffic is, particularly. Bearing in mind the weather conditions, the snow comes no matter what, right?
1: All right. Now, Paul, I have one more thing that I wanted to talk about on our liability special. And that is? And that's whether you can be liable criminally for DUI if you're driving a children's train.
2: And that's an interesting question. Um,
1: the Ridiculous Driver of the week. The, week, the, week, the, week, the week. the
2: reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet,
0: I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to The Pinpoint Method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis,
2: cross-examination The Pinpoint Method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. And uh, I did never, you know, there's all of these ridiculous drivers are things that I would never contemplate. So every one of them is is truth is greater than fiction or, or more, more stranger. stranger than fiction. Yeah. Um, and, uh, this one, let's have the details, Kyla. Yeah. It's pretty amazing.
1: This is in Tennessee. Um, and a man is driving a motorized train for kids at a Christmas event. You know, exactly like the type of this, the Stanley Park train.
2: (laughs) Yeah. This is our first Christmas, uh, podcast episode, by the way. And at the end, maybe we'll even play my Christmas song, Jay.
1: Um, so basically he was a vendor driving the, at the town's Christmas tractor parade on November 11th. Operating Santa's train. And people were a little bit concerned about the way that he was acting. They said he was behaving erratically. Um, and so the multiple people called the police on him to say, you know, you'd better come te- test this guy.
2: Remnant eggnog or mulled, mulled wine? Meth. Or. Or meth. Or meth.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he did a expect- field sobriety test and he had a syringe, meth. Other narcotics on his person. um, And uh, yeah,
2: he he was arrested. This train was not a train on a track in the end. It was like a, a, it was pulled by a tractor type thing. So he's he's kind of clearer at that point. If it was a train on a track on a private private, um, piece of property, it might be a different situation because not where, where are you going to go?
1: I did love, while we're talking about liability, in the news story you sent me about this, the city was asked to give a comment on this man and his behavior at this city event. And uh, they said, Officials clarified that vendor hiring is not done under the city's jurisdiction. Vendors of the parade are independently contracted and their selection is not managed by the city. Which is,
2: we are, we are not we are. taking responsibility for this. Don't bother suing us if he, if meth had
1: Meth head, train,
2: meth head train tractor driver ran over your... Child. Ooh. Well, I was going to say dog, but I didn't want to say... Ran over your Christmas presents.
1: Ran over your big toe.
2: Exactly, <laughs> ran over your big toe. Your...
1: Uh, Anyway, that's our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. If you need to reach us, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving
2: Law. And if you're out there doing your Christmas shopping, be very, very careful in your driving. We don't want any of our listeners to become the ridiculous driver of the week
0: thought the earth was too small for the two of us so i jumped onto a rocket to the moon now christmas time is coming i'm so lowly i wish you'd come and visit me real soon christmas on the moon christmas on the moon This lunar life is lonely, I wish you'd visit soon. Christmas on the moon, Christmas on the moon. Feeling cold and lonely, wish you'd visit me real soon. Stopped at my lawyer's office, he kept me waiting there till noon. Showed me a restraining order, you filed back in June. Drove my truck to Cape Canaveral, had to get off this planet real soon. Found me a rusty old rocket, and blasted off to the moon. Christmas on the moon. Christmas on the moon This lunar life is lonely I wish you'd visit soon Christmas on the moon Christmas on the moon I'm feeling cold and lonely Wish you'd visit me real soon What she said
2: I understand you're cold and lonely and like a friendly visit soon But I saw you in the park with Susie hand in hand beneath the moon You called to say you're sorry That she weren't there to steal your heart Them donuts on my lawn don't impress me Court orders just to start.
0: Port restraining order, it only works on Earth. The price to get to outer space is what true love is worth. We really should be snuggling, it's Christmas after all. A lunar fireplace tender love, you my honey doll.
2: Now on your lunar expedition, you say you've grown a caring heart.
0: Great distance to the moon keeps us apart. I'll take the risk of outer space just to be with you. Cause I love you so much, my dear, I don't know what I'll do Christmas on the moon, Christmas on the moon This lunar life is lonely, I wish you'd visit soon Christmas on the moon, Christmas on the moon I'm feeling cold and lonely, wish you'd visit me real soon Feeling cold and lonely, wish you'd visit me real soon